Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the podcast. Um, this is a very special podcast because I've got a superstar guest. Um, <laughs> it's a week after um, International Women's Day and International Women's Week. Um, is that different in different countries, Helen? I, th- I think it's International Women's History Month. And that? I don't know about the week. I don't know I about the week. I saw week as well. I wonder whether oh, that's... really? Oh. Yeah. The cops are coming for you. Be careful. Yeah, you know insert a joke about that at the moment but it wouldn't be timely so um no it wouldn't now then so helen o'hara is um editor at large for empire magazine she is a best-selling author (laughs) of a book that just came out um how many weeks ago uh about three now maybe yeah um and she has been a friend slash colleague of mine mm-hmm. for what must be 15 years God. or more. Helen yeah. came on our radio show every week to do film reviews for about 10 years or something. That's I right. Um, and now for the first time ever, I'm actually nervous about talking to her because I've read a book and suddenly like uh, I'm aware that Helen is not, you're not going to be able to get any time with Helen in the next <laughs> few years because this book is going to change the world. Please welcome Helen O'Hara. Welcome to the podcast, Helen. <laughs> thank you. I'm not sure I can live up to that, but thank you. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, but then there's a lot of pressure on women to live up to men's expectations, That's it, isn't it? especially mm. in Hollywood. So, H- Helen, tell us, um, in a nutshell, your book, Women Versus Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to say what it's about? Or are you totally bored of it? No, I, <laughs> you, you go ahead. You try it. Because well, I have trouble of, summing it up. <laughs> okay, it's the history of Hollywood. It's a fascinating mm-hmm. story. It's a fascinating look behind the scenes of um, Hollywood. And that, I think, is how it should be sold, especially mm-hmm. to blokes, because blokes need to read this book. I feel bad that Helen has had to write this book. I feel bad that it might be women that read the book. I, I feel naturally apologetic because what I want to say is I am so sorry that my uh, sex has <laughs> caused so much trouble for you. I just feel really sorry that you have had to become a kind of barrister, which you actually trained as. Uh, mm. You've had to become a barrister and make this unbelievably long and well-made case against the imbalance in in hollywood it just makes it makes me feel terrible and uh i am not a a hollywood film director but (laughs) i mean it's not about it's definitely definitely not about making anyone feel bad i i just sort of wanted to understand the kind of forces that have held women back in hollywood because they were there at the beginning and they were trying to make films and they were trying to there were women directors early on there were women stunt women there were you know um studio heads writers editors every every job you can imagine women were doing it at the very beginning and then many of those jobs they were essentially shut out of for 60 or 70 years and are still trying to fight their way back in and 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 we're, the numbers are still shockingly bad um across many many sectors of the industry 
So it was just trying to look at all the different forces that play on that. And, and I don't think some of it is conscious sexism. Like there are some people who are just sexists and who will genuinely tell you with a straight face that there is some reason that women can't direct films, for example, as well as men can, or that audiences don't watch to, want to watch uh, films with female leads. But generally speaking, I think a lot of it is just, you know, people being people, like men hiring men that right. they know and are comfortable working with and feel very safe with in a way that they maybe don't with women in power because that doesn't always make men, you know, feel safe. So it's, mm. it's an attempt to kind of explain things as much to myself, I think, as to anybody else and, and try and make sense of some of the different forces because there's a lot of different forces and different areas in which this plays out you know in terms of pay in terms of the way films are reviewed in terms of the the subject matter that women get to make films about in terms of the roles in which women get hired all of these different things kind of come together and form this really toxic stew and that's that's the problem it, the problem isn't just it's not just as simple as we need to hire more female directors although that would be a big step in the right direction there's a whole lot of other issues as well we also need to give those female directors for example the same independence and the same budgets that we give the male directors so they have the same chance of success we need to give them as wide releases we need to give them you know their choice of big stars to star in it and and that hasn't always been the case mm. we need to pay them as much as the men so they they can build up their funds and have enough money to go off and make an independent film in between blockbusters you know well, all of these things what was the jennifer lawrence uh, stat that i've got i've got that far in the book at the moment oh yeah chapter 11 maybe or something but the... now you're nearly finished yeah but what was the film so the film was American Hustle, and there were sort of uh, four central characters and one supporting character. So the four central characters were played by Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, and uh, Amy. Amy Adams, with Jeremy Renner as a slightly smaller part, but he was in there as well. And um, the men basically ended up getting... I think nine percentage points, which means that once the film has covered its production costs, once they've made back the cost of physically shooting the film, they get 9% of what's left. It was, I think nine and the women were on five. Basically they ended up with much less than the men and they didn't know this. They weren't told they didn't this. Know it, and Jennifer Lawrence was the biggest star in the world at that yeah, point. At that point and had worked with the director before and it was, and you know, Amy Adams had like however many Oscar nominations. I think she had four Oscar nominations at that point. She, of course, now is on like six. So it, it just didn't, on the face of it, it was obviously unfair. And you had that direct comparison in a way that you don't often have. And that's, uh, that's just one example that we know about. And the only reason we do know about it is because of the, of the Sony email hack in 2014, which is where it came out. That's so God knows how many of those there are. And do you think the one person is looking and making that comparison in the first place or whether it's a subconscious thing, whether it's, a, well, whether it's agents okay, um, but pushing? There, the, yes, all of that is a factor. Mm. But actually, they did look at it in that specific case. Right, and they okay. did. There was actually discussion about it. Should we put them on parody? And they'd ah. already put Jennifer Lawrence up from five to seven, but they didn't want to match the men's nine. So that's um, how this came out because it was in an email. Because it was in the emails, they were literally discussing it in the email. Right. I, I, the th the problem is with it being unconscious, quote unquote, is that yes, women tend to be lower paid earlier in their careers because the roles are rubbish. 
you know, they're playing girlfriends, they're playing love interests, they're playing completely disposable roles, and therefore they are treated disposably and they're paid in a sort of disposable manner. And therefore they don't have a good starting point to work up to the same levels that men are on. And they also have much shorter careers. Men's careers tend to last about 17 years longer. And this is, of course, talking stars. Obviously, different rules apply to different areas of the business. Um, but stars is, is interesting because it's the sort of most obvious and, and best reported one. So even the top female stars earn about half what the top male stars do. And that's it is due to, of course, a lot of factors. It is due to people not comparing like for like. It is due to agents not fighting hard enough for women. Um, it is due to there not being as many roles for women as men. So there are lots of different things that we all have to address, all of them. Mm. But it's also about straight up sexism and people not seeing a problem when they do have both sets of figures in front of them. But Transparency do... always helps like to instantly become a better organization, I think. My uh, bullet point telling of this book so far is this. In the sort of Chaplin era, which I've always been mm. fascinated by, um, Chaplin was given his first job by a woman. There was loads of women in charge. There was loads of women stars in the silent era. And these people took over the world. They were seen around the world in mm-hmm. the industry. War happened industry really had took off and yeah. wall street got involved and as soon as wall street get involved in something what you get is fine capitalism which is what show business is always going to be you're going to get bums on the seats probably yeah but unfortunately what comes with capitalism tends to be a, a blindness because most of the capitalists are still white men who then will take confidence in and fund things that, where, that they recognize themselves or that they yeah. want to see. You did, you did have, you know, you did have men who, va- who recognized the value of women as an audience. So David O'Selznick, for example, very famously, the producer of Gone with the Wind, um, recognized that women are a huge part of the audience and made a lot of what were called women's pictures. You know, George Cukor was a great women's director. Up in, up in the modern era, Gary Marshall made films for women, not men, in the same way that Catherine Bigelow makes films about men, not women. Mm. So it's not always like, oh, all men are, you know, leaving women out of the picture or out of the story. It's more about what you, exactly what you say. Men are, t- as a general rule, mostly tend to kind of chime to stories about them or for them. And therefore you get this preponderance of male heroes, male focuses, male storytelling generally, Mm. male filmmakers being trusted to tell these stories, even if they are female-led stories. Um, They're the ones who are seen as naturally authoritarian, naturally able to control budgets, control stars, to control schedules. And that's where women get shoved out. And, and, I don't even entirely blame the Wall Street men of this era because it must have seemed weird to them because women barely had the vote if if they even had the vote at that point because it was you know through that whole period where mm. women were, were just getting the vote in the US. Um, it must have seemed weird that these people who couldn't even get a bank loan without a husband signing for it were suddenly expecting to do these huge jobs and be trusted with millions of dollars. So yeah, that's why they went for men. It is, it is weird because um, actually, like, you know, in radio, there's probably three mm. radio stations that, that aim themselves at a target audience of men that, right. that 
that commercial radio in Britain has been was built on the back of this idea, which is incorrect, I think, but is this idea of the Procter and Gamble stay-at-home mum and the mm. advertisers want women. So something Jamie and I were constantly told in radio is like, you should be talking about hair straighteners because that's what the 35-year-old woman wants to talk about. You know, well, you, I, you've always struck me as a massive expert on hair straighteners. I mean, what, why not? <laughs> I know. Um, but just remarkable, you know, men hmm. telling other men how to talk to women. Um, but the point is that fumbling or not, they've, um, commerce traditionally has had this big kind of goal of getting female bums on seats. Yeah. Yet yeah. in cinema, they managed to completely get that backwards. Is that because it's an, an ego? Is it because there are investors with a massive amount of personal money? And if you and me were going to make a film now about mm. Ireland, we might go right. to Graham Norton and pitch him. And we know that it needs to be Irish and funny, right? Because that'll <laughs> play to Graham's... I'll play to uh, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Look, there's an element of that. I think actually in the early days, they did recognize the value of the female audience. I think for a long time, they really recognized the value of that. And that's why people like Selznick were so uh, successful. You know, it's why, you know, even somebody like Alfred Hitchcock, who treated his leading ladies abominably, but he made films about women consistently. Most of his films have a female heroine, often a female point of view character, and they are interesting complicated characters in a way that many many of his contemporaries you know didn't do so you know there there were people who made their careers and made very successful careers on catering to a female audience i think that began to change quite late i think that really began to change in the 70s where you got this new wave of sort of i mean great filmmakers very daring filmmakers coming through and they were influenced not just by old hollywood but also by these kind of you know, French New Wave and Italian neorealists and all these kind of cool hip mm. movements coming from Europe. Mm. And they wanted to move away from this kind of what they call, you know, saw as this kind of schmaltzy, safe cinema. And so you got stuff like, you know, The Godfather and Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and all this kind of stuff that is very, very, very macho, very macho. Mm. And, um, and then on the back of that, you got the kind of movie brats coming through and they find a new way of basically appealing to everybody with these huge blockbuster films. So the Jaws is the Close Encounters, the Star Wars. And those are films about men appeal to everybody because they're just like super good films. And it seems honestly from that point on, Hollywood decided that those films where the audience was not just but led by young men were the ones to go for that the young men were the ones who were reliably consistently turning up in huge numbers and often repeatedly to see these movies they decided to focus their efforts on those and if you look at the cinema of the 80s and the 90s that's what we've kind of been focusing the big bucks at least Mm -hmm. on ever since and you've got a parallel cinema of like rom-coms you know to send your mum and your granny to um or go on you know go with a date to see but generally speaking, Hollywood invested in the blockbuster and it invested in blockbusters it thought would appeal to teenage boys. And that worked up until the sort of this century when video games really began to overtake cinema as something that teenage boys wanted to do for mm. the most part. And they suddenly realized that that wasn't enough anymore. And that was lots of these films aiming at teenage boys were just boring everybody else and the boys weren't even turning up. So that's when they start looking to kind of diversify again and that's the sort of the era that we're still in they're still trying to figure out how they can appeal 
to really everyone. And they're thinking globally now, because it used to be Hollywood made two thirds of its box office in the US and one third around the, the world. That's flipped. That's completely wow. flipped. So they now need to be thinking about what will people want to watch in China? What will people want to watch in Brazil? How will this travel around the world? And so they're trying to find these grand concepts and these grand characters that will appeal around the world, but also hopefully be more inclusive and get people excited at home. So look, I mean, I don't envy them the task a lot of the time, but there has been this evolution in who they're trying to speak to and who they're trying to focus on. Um, and, never... and it has, yeah, it's been rocky, let's say. Well, you have changed my life with this book. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've struggled with two things in my life in order to be a proper man. And that is football. I've never enjoyed mm -hmm. football. I'm sorry mm -hmm. to everyone, one of my colleagues who now have just lost all respect in me. Uh, I've spent a life apologizing for that. And mm -hmm. Star Wars, I've never, ever been able to get into Star Wars. And I've tried so many times to force myself to enjoy it. That just force. two days ago, <laughs> the force is strong. Two days ago, <laughs> Sarah and I said, do you know what? Let's do it another lockdown project let's start at the, at the beginning chronologically of oh, star no. wars and watch them right okay um, well hang on when you say chronologically you mean start with 1977 I mean, no i mean no episode, episode oh one. no mm. oh i'm so sorry don't bear in mind i have seen them before i just never no. okay. i couldn't tell you more than two seconds of what happened because i just switch off um and i have to say that I am really loving it this time. The, of course, those first films are... I, I mean, it's amazing how films made in the year 2000 can age more than films made in the 70s, <laughs> but they have. I mean, it's dreadful. However, this is with one big caveat. <laughs> oh, God. Every time my eyes are tired of looking at the screen and going, well, there's a woman, but it's a princess in peril. Mm -hmm. um, oh, there's another woman, but she's in a sexy dress and she's a singer in the lounge. Yeah. Uh, there's a woman. Oh, we've got a strong female character here who is exceptionally good. Oh, she's got pregnant. And when she gives birth, she's going to die from mm -hmm. a broken heart. All yeah. the doctors there aren't going to be able to save her. because Medically, I'm not sure that sound. Yeah. Meanwhile, her husband <laughs> slash, yeah, husband, yeah. right? He gets burned by lava, all of his yeah. legs and arms chopped off, mm -hmm. and manages to survive and take over the universe. Now, in Helen's book, she points out <laughs> <laughs> that it tends to be in these films made in the 70s and onwards, and even before, um, that if a woman dies in a superhero sort of setting, she is gone forever or she's permanently kind of uh, weakened. If yeah. a man dies, he will come back and not just come back, he will come back stronger. Yeah, ah. it's, it's the difference between, you know, Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man and Bucky Barnes in Captain America, who comes back with a super duper cool arm, you know. <laughs> so the two things that I'm basically saying is um, mm. the representation, like literally the Smurfette rule, which you can explain. The Smurfette rule is driving me nuts. I'm going, do you really need five men and one woman tagging along? Who, yes, she's exceptional, but what pressure to put on women to be exceptional? Yeah. And this is the thing, isn't it, that many women in power will recognize as well, that if you're going to rise to the top, you better be exceptionally either gifted, talented, 
exceptionally lucky or exceptionally brutal compared yeah. to your male counterparts? Ideally, all of those, really. I think, so the, the Smurfette rule is basically the one girl in the, in the team alongside all the men. And, and this has been a, 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 just a classic feature of, of cinema storytelling. It's true of the Avengers. It's true of the Justice League. It's true of Star Wars, pretty much. It's true of a lot of, like, kids' cartoons. It's true of freaking Paw Patrol. We're starting kids on this at a really young age. <laughs> and... Um, and that's beginning to change. So the Gina Davis Institute, for example, has made this a huge focus, especially in kids cartooning, and is just trying to make kids programming more equal. And that, that is beginning to change, and that's great. But the Smurfette thing, this ratio of one woman to about five men is, is kind of insane. And you're right. Yes, they're all like, oh, but it's cool because she's kick-ass. Mm. And it's like, but, you know, should she have to be uh in every case and and shouldn't there be other women there to to kind of work with her mm. but it does kind of reflect some kind of reality because in these male dominated professions for a long time there was only room for one woman in the room there was that sort of classic kind of you know company board why would we want her we've already got a woman mm. um and and they not just a woman other minority groups it's the same sort of thing well we have a black person so that's us covered. We've got representation nailed. And it's like, that's not how representation works, actually, guys. Um, we're not tokens. But, but there was this perception for a long time. So Dawn Steele, who was one of the first senior female executives in Hollywood, you know, early in her career, she says, you know, if there was only room for one woman in the room, I wanted to be that woman. Mm. And she, would, she was pretty cutthroat about it, she says herself. Um, but what changed, I think is that women began to see that it isn't a zero-sum game. And I think that's been particularly true since the Me Too movement because women got together after Me Too started coming out and they started talking not just about sexual harassment and sexual assault, but also about just their general lives. And they started to realize that it isn't, you know... It, the problem was there genuinely was probably three great female roles in Hollywood every year mm. and every A-list actress would go for all of them. Yeah. And so there was, you know, bad feeling and there was a sense of missing out and there was a sense of it being if she gets ahead, then I lose out because there wasn't enough to go around. Which is true, yeah. Mm. Which is true, yeah. And what's changed, I think, in recent years is they're starting to work together uh, to develop their own projects. And by the way, this is not to say that the previous generations didn't want to do that or didn't try to do that. The difference is now they're succeeding. Now they're able to make the case that... Um, the studios are cutting off their own nose despite their face by not investing in female-led projects. Now, you know, efforts to actually quantify women's involvement in Hollywood are beginning to pay off. People have been doing research. People have shown that audiences want to see female-led projects. You know, something like Captain Marvel showed that you can pass a billion dollars with a female lead. And that is really important. So this kind of stuff is beginning to change, but it is this huge mental shift that's needed and it's taking a while, you know? Take a drink. <laughs> you must be exhausted. Are you exhausted talking about the book? I mean, um, I, I, don't, I don't like talking about myself so much, so that's kind of weird, but talking about the subjects is kind of what I've been doing for years, to be honest. It is what you've been doing for years, but- You know, you kind of a bit more concentrated. Yeah, but yeah. I am. What I suppose what I'm aware of is that, like, it's so concentrated, it looks exhausting to be in this mm. mode, right? 
where you are, if you're promoting a book like this, you presumably for weeks and possibly months ahead, you're going to be um, in this state of um, uh, the closing uh, closing arguments in the court. <laughs> right? That's exhausting, and it and I'm I'm I get it. I feel it when I'm reading the book. And the thing is, we're only just reading it now. How long have you worked on this? Uh, I, I started in um, 2019, so it would have been about, uh, well, I, I first conversation about it was in about February, but obviously then I, I kind of, you know, it's the usual thing. You start doing some research, but it's kind of half-hearted when you have a minute because you've got other more urgent stuff on. So I probably didn't start really writing until September 2019, and I had to turn it in by about, may of last year God, I think. Helen. so it was fairly concentrated actually it was pretty You've concentrated been in, in closing arguments for like two a year and a half two years basically yeah I mean, yeah but, is... but i mean you know the, the thing is like i always liked arguing as a barrister that wasn't the problem mm. the problem was all the kind of procedure and paperwork right. that i wouldn't the, the, have, here, here you just so get to do the arguing yeah exactly great. it's great <laughs> um sex scene sorry me too um, mm. so, so I just read the Me Too chapter or you read it to me on the audiobook. Um, uh, it's, it's a heavy chapter and it's mm. brilliant. It's, you know, just brilliantly written, focused a lot on Harvey Weinstein, obviously. When I was a student of theatre, and there's a question at the end of this, when I was a student at about the age of 20, I was taken under the wing of yeah. a big female theatre director who knew lots of the most famous people and I was very, very impressed. And I found out that she knew a very famous man who's a Hollywood star and whose name I'm still not going to mention because I'm wary of his trial not having happened. And I said, oh, what's he like? And she said, he likes young boys. And I asked, you mean he's gay? And she said, no, he likes young boys. Mm. And it was 20 years later before the stories came out about that person being potentially a paedophile and uh, accusations of um, um, abuse. And I want to know, firstly, you've worked in, you've worked in the realms of, of Hollywood and, and, the, and the press and media. Mm. And someone said to me last week about Savile, was like, how come the media takes so long? How come things take so long? Yeah. And I said, well, I remember when we were in radio, when we first started together, I think Jimmy Savile was still alive. And I'm pretty sure that it's true. Most, pe most people knew rumors about Jimmy Savile. But you, ca you just can't go on the radio and make an accusation about somebody without any evidence. Like, you can't mm. go anywhere near because you would be absolutely crucified. Like you, you, yeah. Not only would your career be over locally because you've put the station in jeopardy, but he would probably sue you as well. You know, your legal training is massively. Whereas the free press, the newspapers can say what they want, which is why they can be so appalling to someone like Meghan Markle. But so aside from the fact that everybody's careful about... Um, making accusations legally mm. why do you think it takes so long whether it's men or women this person was a man um, mm. affecting men yeah <laughs> attacking men um, why does it take so long aside from and is a lot of it just fear of, of um, prosecute of litigation yeah some of it is yeah some of it is 
you've probably been told by these accusers that no one will believe you. There's a, a massive power imbalance in most cases between accuser and accused. Um, and they will and they, they have literal whole teams of people who will smear you, who will campaign against you, who will seek to ruin your reputation. You, your career will pretty much definitely suffer. suffer. Um, you, your, you know, top Google result will be, this being associated for life with this person who has abused you um you will there, there is no upside there is almost no upside the, the only upside is you protect people from it happening in future right that that's that's the best you can hope for and that, that's like, one of the things i wanted why if if you went through something horrendous like rape and then you uh, and, and the only upside of of talking about that would be to potentially save somebody else Hopefully. But uh, yeah. yeah, possibly. And possibly. yeah, this is it. This is it. Because, really, you know, the only difference is going to be that everyone's now going to know that is yeah. going to define you by that. That's by that. horrendous. Exactly. And why this is why, you know, that? women did come out before mm. against Harvey Weinstein. What women did speak out before and um, they saw charges dropped and they saw nothing happen. And they saw they had lawyers tell them that they should settle because that was the best they could hope for. And, and that's something I talk a little bit about in the book because it genuinely is the best they could hope for most of yeah, the time. Yeah. Um, that, that is not bad legal advice. That is good legal advice. It mm. is grotesque. It leaves them free to continue their predations, but that is the best possible outcome for the individual woman most of the time. And there is, and the best possible outcome for her career, which she got into most of the time because she loved it. You know, people don't actually get into working in Hollywood, especially if they go in as assistants or something, because they want to be stars and they want to be rich. They don't generally have very venal um, aims like that, not, not as a rule. They generally want to be involved in make, making movies. They generally want say, that magic and that, that the art. Line, that's the line that, that, that brought a tear to my eye listening to mm. the to the chapter last night because it is a it is a heavy chapter of course mm. but you know not heavy like hello we've not we, it's not like watching the r kelly documentary right it's, oh, it's a God. very yeah. as with the rest of helen's book it's a very well argued and descriptive thing but then mm. you you get to that point and it really chimes with me that's like everything that we're talking about here everything it's still by people, you know, the industry might be a hundred years old, but the the people running it are only probably our age or a bit older, yeah. right? Or some yeah. of them twice as old. Some They're all yeah. humans. Like we are talking mm. about humans. So when, when you say Harvey Weinstein had people who um, would rubbish your your reputation, this is someone, I think of anyone you work with, a human being yeah. is actually out there now and their job is to write stories that will rubbish the person who's accused your boss, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They exist and they're just there. And the people making decisions about pay and the people who are um, uh, deciding what things get commissioned and what films get backed, they're all flawed, normal human beings who are making their best guess and their best guesses are full of prejudice. They might be completely mm -hmm. wrong. They're missing a great story that's told by a woman that's starring a woman or a transgender person or an LGBTQ plus um, or a disabled person. You know, there's so many stories that there's so many gaps in the market as, a, yeah. as capitalism. Yeah. There are so many gaps in the market. They're not telling it, but what's at the 
bottom of all of this is a bunch of kids like all of us who wanted to get into something and tell stories and play parts and Mm. have magic. And that kid who worked so hard and went to drama school or didn't or went and did something else, they then um, went for a meeting with somebody who took his dressing gown off. They then went, I've got a choice now. I either um, carry on working in the thing that I've wished since I was four and I have a million pounds payout to help me survive doing that. Or I accuse somebody yeah. who will ruin me. Yeah. And, and, and he will. And he did. You know, that's that's the key. And, and you know, far better than me, a lot of the victims have written about this really eloquently. Lupita Nyong'o's uh, piece on this was was really, really moving because she was literally saying he this is one of the first people I met in the industry was Harvey Weinstein when she was still a student at Yale Drama. And, and he, he acted this way. He was asking for a massage and everything and offering to give her one. And, and she was like, and I just thought, is this the way things are? Is this what I have to get used to? And it really gave her a crisis of confidence. And I think it, you know, there was a moment there where she considered, do I want to be a part of this business? And she did soldier on. And, and in her case, you know, she managed to basically get out of the room and away from him and sort of moved on with her life. Um, but you know, it, it was a close run thing. And it is really frustrating how many women's failed careers are directly attributable to that one guy, that mm. one guy. Mm. And you can't tell me he was alone. That's not, he's not the only person in Hollywood who ever did this. He's not the only person in Hollywood who, who was part of this. So that's just one guy is responsible Hollywood for is a, and, a trail of and one of careers. And one of the issues is the separation between sexually liberate, lib- liberal culture and abuse right and and there is a line and this is what i'm saying about you know these are people who exist um i know it even before you get into the industry at drama school you know there are a bunch of incredibly good looking confident people running around and having to do things like um, scenes where you uh, bend yourself backwards, pretend to be a penguin, any number of crazy things. And the confidence that mm. that takes, let me tell you, is is quite a yeah. sexually confident environment. Let's put it that way. I was quite intimidated, but certainly lots of, you know, when it's in touring theatre and stuff, lots mm. of intercompany relationships happen sure, because... Yeah. It's a small bunch of people work very closely together. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Mixed, it's very intense. Very intense. Young, beautiful but, people, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And mixed together with that California, the sunshine, yeah. LA, that is completely different from a point that completely. you make in the book, which is any conversation about a job uh, <laughs> that happens whilst also discussing sex in any way is inappropriate. Now, whether, mm-hmm. whether or not the um, person in the room who's asking for a job um, feels comfortable with it or not. It's mm-hmm. inappropriate. And yeah. And this is like, this. I didn't even really get into this in the book. There, there is a wider social thing that we, we as a society seem to be totally okay with, with kind of just hand waving the fact that, oh yes, he's a powerful man. Therefore he will have young women falling over him. Mm. And that's insane that is completely utterly mad and it should not be that way and i'm not of course there are women who who absolutely do go out of their way to find rich men because they're you know maybe they've grown up poor and they're just like they worship wealth and i get that but at the same time that is not a healthy thing for society to uh to to condone actually encourage Yeah. yeah encourage actively encourage and and i think 
if you had a more equal balance of people in power, if you had more powerful women alongside the powerful men, I think there might be a little shift in that attitude. I'm not saying it would suddenly fix everything, but I think it might, you might get to the point where powerful men get to be embarrassed about hanging out with 20 year olds, maybe. And I think that's one of the reasons that they don't want powerful women around them in Hollywood, because I think it is embarrassing. It should, you should be embarrassed. If you're a successful, intelligent 40 something, and you genuinely date 20 somethings who are nowhere near your own intellectual capacity a lot of the time, because you're not asking about their intellectual capacity. Mm. Um, that is a problem and you should be a little bit embarrassed by that i think personally <laughs> Let's make people embarrassed i think we Pull should make people i think we genuinely should make people embarrassed by that and See, this um, is where you and i differ and they don't want to be and that's why maybe why they keep me out of those rooms <laughs> you, yeah yeah maybe I, I think i think you're right that that is embarrassing where you where you and i disagree is the is the motivating power of guilt i think Guilt works in a PR sense. If you think if you're mm. going to be publicly shamed, then these organizations change it. But as an individual driver, I don't think guilt works very well. I think it buries, buries. I think, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's more a, a wider question of long-term changing society. So we, yeah. we stop valuing. I think, I think we have a fundamental power imbalance between men and women in personal relationships because women are primarily still judged on looks mm -hmm. and youth both of which are kind of finite resources and yeah. men are still judged in terms of accomplishment ability which are not finite and which can keep growing th through your life i think it's important that men admit when they realize that they've been wrong as well like that the, the all of us take responsibility for blind spots that we had and I, and I I wrote down I was listening to your book the other day and I wrote down if I talk if I get to talk to Helen I have to admit to having had the awful opinion or fear that you voice in the film that I expect women to be less interested in selling out in making commercial mm. hits Right. Yeah. The point in the book is that maybe studios would give big blockbusters to blokes more than yeah. they would to women because they feel like the blokes would be what more swashbuckling with the budget or with, with yeah, or or just they see that as a male purview. They see that as a male subject, and they give the the men those opportunities and the female directors historically. And this is beginning to change. Literally in the last four years, mm. um, they historically don't give those opportunities to women. So I mean, the the first. The first woman to direct a, a film with a budget over $100 million was, I think, uh, Catherine Bigelow with K-19. Mm -hmm. That flopped, or at least underperformed, and so there wasn't another one for over a decade, you know? Not a single <laughs> other woman women. with $100 we million. Tried yeah, women we've done that, there. been there, done that. All Jeez. women have now proved that they can't make a hit on a big budget film. Well, I started so. really get, like in, uh, examining my my own brain as to why I would why I would have thought that, mm. and I think... So when I studied directing, there was uh, seven or eight of us on the course. See, it was a majority women anyway. There was three mm -hmm. blokes, I think. The women, and to, to think about that age, so 19, yeah. going backwards from 19 even, if you think about our education, the one thing yeah. that we know is that girls are more academically um, robust than boys mm -hmm. generally. They get better results. They're told from an early age, probably, that they've got to work very hard and they've got to prove themselves. There's this 
white boy um, expectation that, well, I know that I'm going to have a job. I know that I'm going to basically be able to do anything that I want. And maybe that's part of the swagger that goes right to an early age. Maybe, and, also maybe this, and also there's this decoupling, I think, at school age between, again, being masculine and being educated almost. You know, there's this, oh, you don't want to look too geeky, then you're less male somehow, which is nonsensical. But I think there is... There can be in a lot of schools, there is that little sort of thing going around. Of, yeah, maybe. You know, yeah, yeah. It's almost either football or books and not both. Kind I, of I, That's I, obviously yeah, an oversimplification, yeah. but you know what I mean? Yeah, I went for drama instead. But I think that was because I realized I could chat to girls if I did drama. <laughs> boys. This is what I know, exactly. There's anyway. No girls in the football pitch. Anyway. Yeah, no Star Wars or football for me. Academically, I was quite good. But yeah, generally, boys are all over the place kicking things. Mm. Um, and girls have, have got their heads in the books. My sister yeah. versus me and my brother, my sister's revision wall was like full for months. You know, if you then take that to university age, a uh, lot of the girls were international students as well, but they were incredibly studious compared to the three boys that were on the course. Right. Um, yeah. And when it came to being given a brief to direct something, so the projects might go, everyone's given one brief. You've mm. all got to take a classic text and you've got to put on a play. Um, I would be, and the boys generally would probably be more cavalier with that brief. Mm -hmm. They'd interpret it somewhat and they'd go and get it done and be a bit more blah, 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 and uh, get really good marks. The girls got good marks as well, but they would be very, very, very studious and um, very careful about it. And Mm. what all of this does to, to me, the way that I interpreted that, I expect, I consider them better than me. I consider them more thorough. Mm-hmm. I consider that if we were really given a test about who knew the Elephant Man script best, they've definitely read it beginning to end and I haven't. Um, right. And so there's this idea that if I give this job to Helen to direct, mm. she is not going to be able to disrespect the subject enough that when the budget's running out at the end of the day and we just have to get something done because otherwise we're going to be 12 million behind. She's Mm. not going to be able to do that because she's going to want to get it absolutely artistically right. She's going to be too good for this. Isn't that interesting? Because Hollywood has also argued the absolute opposite, which is that men are the true artists and they've kind of withheld auteur status from women and they've sort of treated them as... The auteur thing, don't even... Yeah. I mean, I mean, just it, I hate that word anyway. I think it, I know it's 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 the so anyway the, the whole I, I don't want to get into the the whole definition of it, but but yeah, yeah I, I sort of did in the book, but yeah. but there is there has been this tendency to to lionize the male creative, and yeah. and kind of again I think you're right I think see the women as more journeymen as as certainly reliable and good at holding hands with nervous cast members and very obviously sort of maternal and nurturing or kind of words that you're allowed to be as a female director. But that sort of um, thing, let's do this and get it done. And that's the end of the day. Boom. Mm. Women haven't been credited with that. And, and also, though, the catch 22 is when women try to do that, they get people arguing with them. So it's mm. not that women aren't decisive. It's that women face more consequences for being decisive and are more likely to people argue back and more likely to have their decisions questioned and more likely to just face opposition. On whatever what it is your they've book just taught said. me is is that yeah. I, I might actually be right that generally women are better prepared because in education they thought that they should be well prepared for stuff. Mm. That, that might be true, 
but also the perception of that might have something to do with um, yeah. the fact the, the consequences that, are higher the for, consequences for getting it wrong. Yeah. So they've got to show up on day one in your book. You know, this uh, the female director might feel that she has to show up 100% with her plan sorted because she's going to get shot at by so many people who are just going, are you sure you want to do that laugh? Indecisive, aren't you? Trying out three different camera angles. Yeah. Also, I mean, then, also creative though. And, and yeah. I have had, you know, you know, because I've quoted it in the book, but female directors have told me they didn't feel able to change their mind on the day and try something different just to see if it worked because they knew their camera crews might lose respect for their, for their decisiveness. Um, and of course, this is only talking about one aspect of, of discrimination about uh, you know, sort of gender, but you had uh, both Maya Angelou, and this really struck me, Maya Angelou and Gina Prince-Bythewood, both female black directors, both said independently, 30 years apart or more, 40 years, I think nearly, both said, um, I have to be 10 times as prepared as a mm. white man. Mm. 10 times both of them said exactly the same thing i don't know if gina was quoting maya or if she if she'd read that interview or if she was just quoting the same feeling but that is uh, 40 years later saying exactly the same thing i've got to be 10 times as prepared as a white man that's incredible what what i like is that sort of at the end of each chapter it seems that you have a couple of like top tips <laughs> you haven't quite listed it like that <laughs> but you quite often go you know if we just do this things will change it'll help yeah. Um, and there things, should be no advice for women there. You know, the, the last thing that you, there's no <laughs> advice for women going, why don't you prepare a little bit less and be a bit more cavalier? <laughs> oh, <laughs> God, no, that wouldn't work. <laughs> no, I, I, like, so I, I have, I have, you know, the, the, spoiler, but the last chapter is pretty much more about, about stuff like this. A big thing that we can do as consumers is just see films by and with and starring women. That would be a big thing. And, and part of the problem, I think, has the different ways, and this is really nerdy, but the different ways that men and women tend to see films. So if you're a teenage boy and the new Batman film is out, you're probably going to try and go opening weekend, right? That's probably what you're yeah. thinking of. You're kind of hooked up. You know it's coming. You're going to go open, opening weekend. Now, so continuing to deal in mad, mad generalizations. If you're a 40-year-old mother of three and the new Meryl Streep film is out and you want to see that, great. You might not notice it for a couple of days until you see it advertised on TV and then you have to organize a babysitter. So maybe you don't go and see it until the following Wednesday. And then you find it's already moved out of the big screen into the small screen. So opening weekends matter. And if you can, if you are able, it's really helpful to go and see a film in the opening weekend because that is when the studio gets the biggest cut of the takings and it is where they focus their efforts and it's where they decide if a film is going to be a success or a failure in a lot of ways if you can't go to the cinema obviously none of us can at the moment but if you generally speaking if you have trouble getting to a cinema that's showing these films you know watch them on streaming get them on vod if you can afford it you know just make the effort if you can't do any of that you can at least tweet or Facebook message or whatever, write to people like physically on paper if you want. And, um, and just, you know, say that you notice things, you know, say I enjoyed that film directed by such and such a woman. Let people know that you're looking at this stuff. I note that you and haven't had any you've... dramas by women this year, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. There, there, there are options. Or maybe tweet, tweet uh, George Lucas and say, I've noticed that there's, 9,998 men in your films and I know it's four <laughs> women one of them is in a 
goldfish bowl singing a song as a jazz singer. <laughs> like, um, start to notice it. Just noticing this stuff is driving. Just me. noticing, yeah, genuinely noticing. It. And like, I have a, I have a section in the book on on some of the tests um, for yes. representation in film. So Smurfette, for example, is one of them. And just sort of get yeah. to noticing. Hang on, why is there only one woman in the Justice League? You know, get get to yeah. just kind of change your eyes a little bit. Helen O'Hara is the least capitalist person that I know. Probably not the least that I know, but certainly uh, I wouldn't say that in lots of arguments about politics and all sorts of things that we've had in the past that Helen comes down on the side of capitalism, right? Not but a it, huge number, no. But it does seem to me that the ultimate solution to everything that you describe is kind of saying yeah. this is a capitalist system and the solution is capitalism. It can also be capitalist, yeah. Because there is a, a gaping gap in the market once you realize once you count how many men are on the screen and go and this is what i was saying right at the beginning when i said i feel like i need to apologize um I, do you know i said to sarah you know i realized that i have been spoiled rotten my entire life every film that's been made has been aimed at titillating me in various ways right yeah and and now now that i see things like um some of my favorite things in the last few years ranging right from bridesmaids mm. which is i would say slightly different thing but ghostbusters is one of my favorite films everybody slags it off i mean even helen says it's not an amazing film but i love yeah, i think it's fine i think it's, it's fine brilliant. um <laughs> that and there's loads of stuff that when i see uh female made stuff but female led stuff that is there for entertainment that's there for a mass audience it's yeah. brilliant i love it yeah and the problem that we've got is that we've been spoiled. And that's why I feel like mm. I need to apologize. Um, yeah. What do you think people expect the book to be versus what it is? I think probably people think it's more historical than it is because, you know, for example, I did that Radio 4 Book of the Week thing and they have very much focused on the, the sort of first half of the book, which is quite historically focused. And yeah. the second half is a little bit more getting into the present day and, and the issues that we're still dealing with. So, um, so people might bit. think it's a proper history. <laughs> it's, the first half's real fun, right? The wheels are flying off the train. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> and then suddenly we're faced with ourselves and things yeah, get sorry about that. more and more serious. <laughs> look. There's um, still some fun bits in it, like there's superheroes and stuff. It's fine. It's brilliant. It's brilliant all the way through. It just gets good. The closer it gets to now, it's like somebody literally zooming a camera in on you and going, oh, sugar, this is what we... <laughs> uh, um, it's so good, Helen. I absolutely, I cannot tell you how impressed I am. It, it, you know, it's just, it, it's just so, so impressive. And I, and I oh, genuinely think that this is going to change the world. There's, you cannot watch a film the same way again after you've read your book. And the, I have like no doubt whatsoever that numerous people in Los Angeles, young or old, are reading this book. And, and therefore, you really have injected into the DNA of the, of the place like such amazing, useful stuff. You've, you've changed the world with, a book, with this book. <laughs> Well, thanks, mate. I'm not sure I have, but you I have. appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> Unless nobody has bought the book, then you must be changing it, everything. Thanks, Helen. <laughs> Pleasure. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.